What Was That Like? contains adult language and content and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Today is September 11. Today is the day we remember and honor those who lost their lives here in America on September 11, 2001. 246 innocent people aboard the four planes that were hijacked. 2,606 people in the World Trade Center and the surrounding area. 343 of these were firefighters and 71 were law enforcement officers. 125 people in the Pentagon. Today we're going to hear from two people who were there. Lori Brody and her brother Scott both worked at the World Trade Center. She survived. He did not. Lori will tell us what happened to her that day and in the years since. Joe Falco was a New York City firefighter. He was working to save lives at the World Trade Center and was injured when the buildings collapsed. May we never forget those who were lost on September 11, 2001. Lori Brody Yeah, I guess everybody says everyone has a story, and this happens to be my story, is what my friends told me. Um, Fifteen years ago, my brother and I got up. We went to work on a normal, bright and sunny day. Um, we got off the, the subway at the Trade Center, and he went up to his tower, which was Tower 1, or people know as the North Tower. and. I went to mine, which is the Deutsche Bank building, which was connected to Tower 2. I can still remember what he was wearing. A nice pair of black Calvin Klein pants, a Kenneth Cole sweater with a little collar that's beige, and a nice pair of nice Kenneth Cole tie shoes. That's how we dressed back east. <laughs> and me and my suit and my sneakers, because my heels were in my draw at work. Right when I got to my desk, all of a sudden, you heard these loud bangs and noises and um, alarms firing and everything went nuts. We were told just get away from the building. No one knew what was happening. Then we heard that a small commuter plane probably like a, hit the tower, but nobody was hurt. And that's all we knew at that point. Then we later found out, as we're back, we were back at our desk, I'm trying to reach my brother. My brother was Scott Schertzer, and I couldn't reach him. And then Tower 2 got hit. We were told to run as fast as we could out. We had to run to the other side of the building because our windows were breaking. And I couldn't reach anybody in my family. A nice man named Mark Lubin saved my life because he made sure I got out because I just went into a state of shock because I couldn't reach Scott. He made it to work on the 101st floor at Cantor Fitzgerald. But, and that's the last that I got to really see him was that morning. Then 
It was just about running and more running and more running. And as the buildings collapsed around you, you you just ran and hid in alleys and you you met in the nice you, you hid in alleyways and doorways. People covered you up, which was I I always said there was no such thing as chivalry, but the men were covering up all the women so that they would get whatever, whatever was flying in the air hit them, it didn't hit us. They would just like cuddle us and everything. Then you had to keep running some more through inches and inches of soot or whatever was coming out of the buildings and you can imagine maybe what would have been coming out. And we finally got an office building all the way down by the water because um, we ran that way, not north. We didn't run towards Midtown. We ran further away because that's the only way we could run. And it took me until 12.30 that day to even reach my parents. So my parents at that point didn't know if my brother or I made it. I was able to reach my dad after the first tower, but not after the second. And he knew that's the one that was attached to mine. So they were kind of a little bit more messed up than I guess even I was, because I was in shock more than anything else. But I almost knew he didn't make it. And at that point, I was trying to figure out why did I survive and he didn't when I worked at Cantor a, few, a year before that. So what happened? Why would this happen as F-15s are flying over your head down Fifth Avenue? I mean, you don't know, you're not supposed to see them, and they're lower than the buildings. Police are everywhere. No one knew what was going on. You just knew life wasn't going to be the same ever again. My life for sure wasn't the same ever again because my brother was 28 years old. He didn't exactly have a life. And for me, it was just a lot of, after that, it was a lot of recovery, a lot of therapy, I guess in a good way, two failed suicide attempts, and finding out who you could rely on, what family, what friends. I couldn't sleep, I couldn't do anything. I was told I would walk around with a pillow and my brother and mine's picture on top of the pillow and wouldn't let anybody touch it. And I was told that by many people. And I remember parts of that, but a lot of things are blurry in my mind. And the pieces that I'm telling you are the pieces that I remember more vividly than the other pieces. I had PTSD. I'm still, uh, technically, I still have PTSD because I still get flashbacks. I have survivor guilt. I got my brother the job there. I got Scott the job at Cantor Fitzgerald. One of my friends hired him. And I told him he had to go to work that morning. The day before, he had laid off 50 people at Cantor Fitzgerald. He knew it was coming. He was having what I thought were nightmares and trauma as a result of it for about three or four weeks beforehand because he kept saying 
they're after me, the bad, the bad guys are coming, the dreams are happening, he couldn't figure out what was going on. All he kept telling everybody is how much he wanted to be with family and how much he loved them. He kept telling my mom how much he loved them. And my mom, we knew something was wrong. We were arranging for him to talk to somebody. I mean, it's hard, 28 years old, having to lay off 50 people. That's traumatic. And we thought it was all that. And that night, after he laid off the people, he said he still couldn't sleep. They were following him all over. And he didn't want to go to work because he said they kept following him. And I made him go to work. So... I blamed myself a lot. Obviously, I know it's not me, but part of me will always think if I didn't get him the job, or if the, then I'm like, well, if the subway was five minutes late, like it usually is, we would have not have been there yet. But I don't, you can't, it's, it's what happened. I don't remember, none of my memories are without him. I was, two years and three months older, but I don't remember anything without him. And as we got older, somewhere along the line, we became friends. Our groups commingled when we got older. You know, we go out in Manhattan, we go down to LBI at the shore. We became friends. And so I lost one of my best friends. I see a lot of him in my kids. I sometimes joke, I gave birth to my own, my own brother, because my son, has his sports abilities, significant abilities. My daughter has his blue eyes and blonde hair. And as you can see, I'm not blue-eyed or blonde. And we don't know where it is on my husband's side. And they can't remember how far back it has to be. Obviously, it's there someplace, but nobody knows where it is. I still see him in my dreams. The hardest part is for me is when my kids ask why they can't meet their Uncle Scott or see their Uncle Scott. And I say that he's in heaven, and they are like, well, where is heaven? Because to them, everything's a place on a map. And I have to try and explain it in a way that four-and-a-half-year-olds and two-and-a-half-year-olds can understand without telling them too much. So that's hard for me right now. I found ways to make sure people remember him. I fought my the town I grew up in North Edison and I got our street named after him I got a bench in Central Park named for him outside of Tavern on the Green we have a, a butterfly garden at our grammar school that was funded by neighbors it's just ways that we can find ways to remember him I've been to obviously to the towers since everything happened for me, it doesn't look normal, it doesn't look right, and I don't know why anybody in their right mind would want to be in a building that tall ever again, but that's your choices. It wouldn't be mine. I couldn't take it. I have a special, I had a special pass, a special color that said I was a family member. I went with my husband. And security obviously knows what that pass color means. And they, they kind of stick around by you just in case people start to want to read your badge. And I went into the room where they went into the full details and I lost it and they rushed me out to the family center and let me just sit um, where a security guard doesn't, there's a whole area where only family can go. 
and you could relive a rest and they have like it sounds stupid but they have water and like a little snack for you just so that you can gather your composure again and you could stay there or you could continue i stayed there <laughs> it was hard i've only been there once since being out here i went to every memorial through the first 10 both the big trade center one and Cantor Fitzgerald's has their own. I've met a lot of people through it, other siblings, and of course, you know, obviously, there's the politicians and anybody else that is a, somewhat of a VIP, whatever. But um, I've gone to all of them, and it's hard. It's very hard to be down there. For me, it doesn't look like it should look. They're just rebuilding right on top of it. And for me, I wish they never did. We're one, I guess, lucky, for lack of a better word, that they found a part of my brother. I don't know what part my dad does, and it will die when he, with him when he passes. And hopefully that's not soon. My mom and I, he, he will not tell us what they found. We do know it's not that big. But he was found with, they told you where he was found and who he was found with. So he was found with his coworkers, which means at least they were all together. But I fought long and hard to get to a point where I'm a survivor. There's not much that can be done to me anymore that I can't survive. You learn your family is the most important thing in the world. And in my house, we have a rule we always say we love each other every day and we give each other hugs because you don't know when the last one's gonna be. There, obviously there are some details that I don't even remember, which is probably for the best, but I'm here. It took me a while to get off the meds they put me on. I needed them to go to sleep, to wake up and make it through the day for about four years. But I'm here. And that's what I keep telling myself. And that's what's important. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. A little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully, that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what 
and use code 25WHAT to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25WHAT. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV. And her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. Probably up till now, most people out here didn't know about my brother, about Scott and what I went through. But yeah, there's a big divide. I think people don't remember it out here. I don't know if it's thought of as much. Back East, the major networks will run every memorial with the names on the bottom. You're lucky if you see like a five minute glimpse here as they're discussing traffic on the highway. It's not thought of the same. I, I just, I don't see it being the same. People don't, it's just like an ordinary day and it's not. And if you were back East, it's not an ordinary day need to know that it's families, it's people who died. It's not just the building that came down and the lawsuits over the buildings and the rent that were afterwards. There's 3,000 people that passed away with four planes going down between New York, Pennsylvania, Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and DC. Those are what you have to remember. Those 3,000 people didn't get to live their lives. They, have, they, they all have family members. They have brothers, sisters, moms, dads, kids. Some of those kids never even knew their parents. That's what people need to remember. But I think if you weren't personally impacted, it's just like another day to you. Okay, I'm just going to go on. You went to work the next day. I didn't go to work for a month and a half. And I know people will sit there and compare and say, well, we know we've lost loved ones, but you got to say goodbye. And that's what I keep telling people. I didn't get to say goodbye. We just went to work. We went to work in a business on Wall Street. We did not do anything that would have caused it. I lost faith. I mean, I know that I am Jewish, and that's why I go to the JCC, and my kids go to the JCC preschool. I'm not sure there's a God up there anymore. 
and even I'm gonna say even Sister Elizabeth, because Catholic charities came to our house a lot. Sister Elizabeth was one was the sister. She's like, you don't have to believe in there's if that's what you need to not believe in, you don't believe. I don't know if there is one up there. Because I can't imagine someone allowing this to happen. So it's really hard for me to reconcile that. I talk to my brother almost every day. He, I obviously, I'm, I talk to my family a lot. For my wedding, we set up a place setting for him and we left the groom's spot open because that would have been his place. My son is named for my brother. Stephen is named for Scott. Um, my husband thought we'd be naming, I couldn't use the same name, it just was too hard for me. Um, I didn't want to look at my son's face and cry every five minutes. So I just, we chose the same initials. So yeah, every day I remember, I have his, I have the flag that we got, it's in my house. But as I said, I guess unless you know me, you don't know this is my story. Joe Falco. We get a run in the morning around 8.30 to Penn Station for a, uh, an EMS call. So we go to Penn Station, and I'm waiting at the taxi ramp and where we always park, and the guys, the guys go uh, into Penn Station looking for the victim. All of a sudden, over the radio, I hear uh, the chief from downtown calling up uh, Pfeiffer, saying he has a confirmed plane into the World Trade Center. So right away, I call the officer on the radio, and I tell him that we have a confirmed plane into the World Trade Center. So they, they came back, you know, within minutes, ambulance showed up to take care of the patient. They came right back to the rig. So they make it a second alarm automatically, and it's a third alarm, and we're on our way back to the firehouse, which is only a block away. We get to the firehouse, we back into the building, and now the guys are watching it on TV. Now it becomes a fifth alarm, and this is only minutes later. Uh, engine one goes, so now we get the ticket to go to the box. And now it's, uh, I'm not sure the exact time, whatever, the, whatever time it was, a little before nine or nine o'clock exactly, we go and we get trans transmitted to go. So the one guy, Kirk, he says, you want to drive or you want me to drive? So I was already driving, I was still in the rig, so I said, no, I'll drive, because I was getting off that morning, I was supposed to go home, but I was waiting for a, a detail to come to the firehouse. So Kirk should have been driving that day, but uh, since I was already driving the night, he said, I, you know, I drove. So we get down to uh, the Trade Center. Everybody gets off the rig, and uh, I don't even remember the ride down there. All I know is I got there fast. I mean, it was, there was traffic, but we, we weaved in and out, and the cops had side roads blocked, and we got there so fast that it was uh, you know, pretty amazing how fast we got there. So we parked the rig, and... Uh, <clears throat> I get as close as I can get, which is, you know, it's a lot of rigs are in the way. Everybody gets off. I get off. I get dressed. I get my gear. And uh, I go in and see the, you know, now the guys that are ahead of me, they're already in the building by the time I, I get there. So I, I, I catch up with the officer and the men in uh, Tower 2's lobby, Tower 1's lobby, I'm sorry. And uh, I tell, you know, he sees me, so he says, I don't want you in a building, he says to me. He says, Lieutenant Desperito. Says, I go outside and help somebody get water or get water yourself. Meaning, help somebody hook up to the building uh, and pump water into the building or 
if I can find a handry with my rig to do it myself. So I tell them, okay. So as I look out the door, uh, the windows of the uh, Trade Center, I see 65 engine. He's right in the middle of the highway, and he's in the process of hooking up to a hydrant. So I make my way over to him. Now, I have no recollection of anything in the lobby. I mean, they, they said that there were, you know, there was bodies around, there was debris everywhere. I don't remember any of that. I mean, uh, I was like, you know, whatever, you know, I just didn't, I didn't focus on any of that. All I did know that there was, you could hear thump, crash and crash, that was just, you know, people jumping, hitting all over the place. So you had to watch when you, you couldn't just go out the door, you had to stop and wait till it was clear and then go. So I went across the street to uh, the chauffeur and uh, I knew him, but I didn't know his name. I, I, we run him with him a lot, but I just didn't know his name. So we hook up to the hydrant, we, we charge the line, and now we're looking at the building. And it's a direct shot right across the street to where the connection on a standpipe is for the building. And uh, it is impossible to hook up there. There's debris falling off the building, there's still people jumping off the building, and it's right in our path where we gotta go. So I said to him, I said, we can't, we can't go over there and hook up. You know, we'll get, we, you know, we'll get killed going over there. Something will fall on us. So we look, he looks around, and he notices a hydrant right on the corner of Liberty and West Street. Just, so we pack everything back on the rig, and we take his rig, we drive it over around to, now we're in front of the hotel on uh, Liberty and West. And we, he noses the rig in, we hook up to the hydrant, and we stretch a line down the sidewalk to that same standpipe. And he hooks up, he hooks up, I hook it up to the rig, and now the rig is pumping water, and uh, we're just sitting there watching what's going on. And uh, like I say, debris is constantly falling down. You have to watch, because stuff is coming down. Uh, you have to watch every, every second. And to the side of us is a parking lot, pretty big parking lot, it's full of cars, packed. And there's cars on fire from debris, I guess, when the plane hit, stuff came down, and now these cars are on fire. And it's just right across the road from where we are, you know, just a road's width away from us. So we decide, well, let's try to, you know, we'll try to put these car fires out because we're going to be here all day. Well, we figured we'd be there all day, all night, and who knows when you'd get this fire out. Never in a million years I thought that the building was coming down. So we hook up a line to, we didn't even hook it up to the rig, we went right to the hydrant because there was another hydrant right opposite of it. So we had one lent the hose, hooked it up, and uh, I was trying to put this van fire out. Couldn't go, couldn't put it out. Just for some reason, it wouldn't go out. And I, the whole time, I'm looking up at the building on top of me, because the, now this is Tower 2, the South Tower. And stuff is falling down, you know, light stuff. But it's, it's falling everywhere, everything, all around us. And uh, so after a few minutes, I said, forget it. We'll just keep an eye on it. And if it gets really bad, you know, then we'll worry about it later. Because we just, we're just too dangerous to be in that position with your back to the building. Shut everything off. And now, uh, as we stop doing that, a uh, police officer comes to the door of the hotel lobby and he yells to us, let me know when it's clear to let people out. So I got in the middle of the street and uh, the other fella is halfway between me and the uh, cop. And I'm looking, I can get a better view from where I was. So I'm telling, I tell the other guy, uh, it's clear. So the cop sends people out of the building, but it wasn't that many people, maybe 20 people. And a person comes out in a wheelchair, a person comes out in a stretcher, and then they bring these people over to the south pedestrian walkway. And there's a few ambulances parked under the walkway. And now these people are getting, whoever had to be taken care of is getting taken care of by those ambulances. So we did that, and now a few more EMS people come up. So we, we relinquished the uh, street to them. They, they were hand, they were taking care of the people. So we said, let them 
evacuate, you know, they can direct people out of the hotel. Going back to when I um, came out of the building and I hooked up with the Shofar 65 engine, um, there, the rig is right there, 65 engine. And as far as you could look to your left and as far as you could look to your right, there were nothing but uh, body parts. I mean, everywhere. And there was just, I mean, every, every, there wasn't, you know, hardly any space in between parts. I mean, it was just everywhere. And uh, before we decided I, not to hook up to that standpipe in front of the building, a, a, an engine pulls up right where the standpipe was. And we're, we're still thinking about what we're going to do. At that moment, as that rig pulls up, all of a sudden, a person lands on top of the rig. You have big thud. So that's when we said, we can't hook up over there. You know, we're going to get hit. That, that was our main deciding factor as not to hook up there when that, when that person fell on top of the rig, right in front of where we had to go. So we went back to the rig, and this is when this other fella shows up, the guy Kevin Shea from 35 Truck. He comes out of nowhere, and he says, uh, you know, you want to try to put these fires out? So I said, well, we tried already. We couldn't do it. I said, you know, the three of us, we'll try. So we uh, tried to put them out. We stretched the line on the one side of the staircase of the pedestrian walkway on the, the north side. And we couldn't get a good shot at the, at the van. So we wanted to come around to the back side and shoot between the two back windows of the van. Of the, of the van. So we bring the hose line on the, north, on the south side of the walkway, right next to the staircase, behind the staircase, actually. And uh, the guy Kevin is on the nozzle. I'm backing him up on a hose. And the other guy, who I cannot think of his name, is from 65 Engine. He's standing there, standing watch. So I'm constantly looking up at this building because stuff, like I say, is just falling everywhere. And uh, we were operating maybe five minutes. I don't, you know, with the hose line, I don't know it was much more than that, even if it was five minutes. I looked up one time and the building's just crumbling down, coming down. So I yelled to the two guys to run. Now, I, this time, I don't know that it's the whole building. I just think, you know, a large piece of debris is coming down, you know. So I yelled to them to run. I turn and I'm running south up the West Side Avenue. Because it's not the highway, that's just West Side Avenue. So I'm running south. I didn't get very far. And um, the force of the air coming down with the building coming down, first thing I remember was my arms went out like Superman. My helmet went flying off. And once my helmet went off, I'm said, I'm in trouble because now something's going to hit me in the head. And stuff is pounding me in the back, like somebody's punching me in the back. It's just the, the, the dust and everything coming down, but it's coming down from a thousand feet up. So it's like somebody beating you. So now as it gets stronger, I go into a tumble and I'm just tumbling head over heels, head over heels, rolling, rolling. And it's not black yet, but it's dark. And I get, and I said to myself that I'm not dying like this. I know I said that. And uh, I just get tumbled and I'm going sideways. And before it got dark, the last thing I remember, at least I think I remember, is I'm hitting the center divider on the highway and I get pushed up and over it onto the other. I could see, I, the last thing I saw was the white of the divider. Got hit to it, rolled right up onto the other side and thrown onto the other end. And uh, as this is happening, why, I don't know, but I, either I yelled it or I heard it, my daughter's name. It's the only thing I remember, you know, people say, your life goes before your eyes. Well, one thing I heard was my daughter's name, Jessalyn. And now I don't know if I got knocked out. I don't know how much time passed. But I'm on the other side, and I'm laying, laying flat on the ground. 
And uh, when I realize it, you know, I'm not even breathing anymore because it's, it's pitch black, as dark as dark could ever be. And uh, I think I was even, I think I stopped breathing, just was holding my breath. And I'm laying there, you, you can't hear a sound, you can't see anything, I didn't feel any pain, I didn't feel anything. So I said to myself, well, I must be dead. And so I'm, I'm laying there, and uh, the first thing I thought of was, uh, there's no light. You know, where's the light? Everybody says when you die, they, or they, they, you see this bright light. Well, there's no light. So I'm saying, <laughs> there's no light. Something's wrong. So then within seconds, all of a sudden, uh, you know, you, you, can, you can hear, you can feel stuff, and, and I could taste, you know, you're, you're coughing up, and you're, you say, you know now that you're not dead. You know, you're just, uh, you're sitting there hurt. And the whole time in my mind, I'm thinking that I got to be buried under rubble because it was like a freight train right on my back. The steel just crumbling and everything else happening so loud that I thought I had to definitely be buried. You know, you know, stuff had to be on top of me. So my first instinct was to reach up and out, and I reached around, and I didn't feel anything. So I, I felt better. So well, if I am buried, at least I got room. I'm not, you know, in a tight spot. So now my knee, my back... Uh, you know, my whole body is hurting, you know, hurting. I feel a pain coming back. So uh, I go to get up, and I can't, I can't even stand up because of my leg. So I'm just laying there, and dust is starting to settle. I, I have no idea what the time frame is, but I know dust is starting to come down. And in front of me, a few feet, maybe 10, 15 feet away, I see headlights. Uh, and then I can start to see the outline of an ambulance. And so now I still think I'm buried. So I'm saying, well, I feel much better. Now, there's an ambulance in here. You know, it must be a big void. You know, at least there's a radio in the ambulance, something I can get to, uh, to contact somebody. But I still can't move. And uh, as time goes by, dust settles a more. I look the other way, and I can see another ambulance, maybe 25 feet away from me, facing the other direction. I can see the outline of it. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't make out what it was, but you, can know, you knew it was an ambulance. So I'm sitting there, and... Uh, in the distance, which I believe, I don't even know, I, I think it was from the south coming at me, southwest uh, coming towards me. I see some guys coming with flashlights, firemen, and uh, they're yelling, anybody here, anybody here? So I yell to them, they come over to me, and, uh, you know, you're right, you're right. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm good, I'm right. And uh, that made me feel a little uh, better too, knowing that there was other people around. So now they leave, and within a minute or less, I hear a guy yelling from in front of the van, the uh, ambulance, that he's trapped. You know, help me, help. So now, at this moment, I try to stand up. So I get up on the one leg, and I can't move. I can't walk from where I am to the ambulance because there's so much debris in the way. So I got as far as I could, and uh, you know, I couldn't lift my leg up. So I, I get over to as far as I can, and then I just sat on the pile of debris, and I started yelling for help. So out of the distance. And in front of the van's on fire. There's a fire now. A guy, an EMS guy comes over with a fire extinguisher. And it's still, you can't breathe and you can't really see too well. So dusty. The guy's got a dry chemical extinguisher. And he's going to put the dry chemical on this fire. So I yelled to him, don't do that. I said, the guy can't breathe now. I said, the dry chemical, forget it. So he just pulled the debris away and you know, away from the ambulance. At the same time, the three or four firemen that passed me earlier came back. And I told him that there's a guy caught under the ambulance. I can't, you know, I, I can't get him. Luckily, the four of them, the one EMS guy and the, and the uh, fireman, were able to drag whatever was in front of the ambulance away. And the guy got up and he just walked away. I don't know where he went after that. You know, he just, he just walked into the, into the dust. Getting back to uh, 
the part when I was laying there in the, in the pitch black darkness after the tower had collapsed and I got thrown to the ground. A fellow from 7 Truck was also a, uh, a volunteer in Freeport with me. I've known him since he was a kid. His name is Richard Muldowney. And we had an ongoing thing uh, for years in the fire, in the fire department in the city. He was in 7 Truck on the east side, and I'm in one engine, which is on the west side, almost directly across. He's on 29th Street between 2nd and 3rd, and we're on 31st Street between uh, 6th and 7th. So directly, almost directly across. So in a lot of runs, a lot of boxes, we run in together. If it's in the middle, you know, we go to the east side, they come over to the west side sometimes. But a lot of times we run in together. So in, in order to uh, know if he was working or if I was working, we'd get on the, on the radio, on the handy talkie, and uh, we would just say, boy. And if he was working, he would say, hey, boy, back. Or if he, he called first, I would say, hey, boy, back. And it was just a way that we knew that each other were working that day, that night. So this was going on. This went back for years and years, uh, even before we were, he was in the fire department and myself, uh, back when we were volleys in, in Freeport. Uh, this whole boy thing started way back then, and it just continued on. Every time we saw each other, we called each other boy. So while I was laying in the, uh, the, you know, on, the, on the ground before anything, I, I got any uh, sense of where I was or what have you, in, I hear the word, hey boy. Now, that's, there's nothing I can hear or see, but I hear hey boy. Now, I have no idea that Richie's working that day. I, I don't even know that, you know, seven truck is there. I mean, assume, but I didn't thought of it. You know, I didn't think of it that way. And uh, come out to find out later, you know, of course, that he uh, didn't make it that day. He was working. And, uh, you know, is there something I just thought in my mind? Or that I really, was he really talking to me that day? So I'm sitting there and I'm saying, you know, what am I going to do? I can't do anything. I can't walk. I can't. Uh... And then out of nowhere, I'm covered from head to toe with dust. And people, more people are coming around, coming around. And then out of nowhere, two guys from my firehouse show up. They were in the hotel lobby when the building came down. Their whole company, they got out, and somehow they walked all the way, they went around the way they came out. And we just met eyes. And uh, it was um, Tyrone Johnson and uh, Jimmy Grillo from Light of 24. So they come over to me, and uh, the, three, the, the three of them, two of them, Helped me get up, and uh, they said, we got to get over by the water to get away from the buildings. All right, so uh, Jimmy's got a broken nose. His arm is all messed up. So they helped, they helped me get over, over and away. So now, when you've got a bad leg and somebody's dragging you or helping you walk, and they're pulling you too soon, too fast, and they're killing me. They, you know, my leg is just hurt so bad that they, you know, I just forget it. Let me do it on my own. You know, I'll just take it easy. So now we walk. We're walking away. And just as we get in front of tower, the north tower, and it, now it's clear, now, that, now you can get good visibility, and you can see that the other tower is already down. And so we just get in front of that, but we're in front of it, but on the other side of the highway, far enough away from it. And uh, myself and Tyrone, we hear the, the pancaking of the boom, boom, boom. We turn around, and we see that building coming down. So now I went from not being able to walk to running. So the three of us start running out of the way again, the dust cloud, the air, and everything starts, the dust you know, starts pelting you. We, we didn't fall down, but it was enough to uh, knock you down and choke you. And this time I was able to put my head in my coat to breathe. So in the distance, I could see that there were stairs, and then you went down to the water's edge, and it was a brick, a uh, concrete walk, uh, 
wall that went along the waterway. So I just started to walk. I said, you know, what's ever going to happen is going to happen. You know, I, I couldn't run anymore. So I'm just taking one step at a time, and I found the staircase. It's only a couple of steps. I walk down the stairs. I get to the concrete wall. I knew I had to go north. So I turned to the north, and I just started walking out until I came out of the dust cloud. So now I can see Jimmy. He's already out of the dust cloud pretty much, and he's, you know, near the edge, the water's edge. So I get, I almost get to him, and I turn, and there's a Tyrone's that behind me. And I'm just looking at, uh, I didn't want to go back into it to, to go back to, you know, just didn't want to go back into it. I said, well, I can't leave him, I got to go back. So I take like two steps, and by the time I took two steps, because I, I wasn't moving too quick, I could see a shadow coming at me. And uh, thankfully it was Tyrone. He didn't see the stairs, he fell down the stairs. So by the time he got up and got himself together, so the three of us walked north out of the uh, dust cloud, and that is boats and everything taking people from New York to Jersey. And I, I now, once I get, you know, your adrenaline stops and everything else, I couldn't, I couldn't walk at all. My, my leg was just, uh, I couldn't even take a baby step, it was just so bad. So they're telling me, well, get on a boat and I'll take you to Jersey, to the hospital. Well, I didn't want to go to Jersey because, you know, I didn't know where the rest of my company was. You know, I didn't know where, we knew that the guys in the truck were right because they were on the radio with them. But the engine guys, none of them, uh, engine one guys, none of them were answering the radios. So they convinced me finally to get on a boat. So I got on the boat and they brought me to Jersey, Jersey City Medical Center. They had a big triage area set up on the Jersey side. And uh, they wheeled me off on a, on a uh, stretcher. They put me on a park bench, and then everybody left me. I'm there all by myself. Nobody, there's <laughs> nobody you know, taking care of me, no nothing. Finally, a couple of, people, couple of guys come over, they take my blood pressure and everything out, and then they leave. And like, I'm just sitting there by myself. And a woman came by, and she wanted to uh, know if there was anybody I wanted her to call for me. And I gave her my wife's number at work, and... She finally, eventually, in the course of the day, she was able to get through to her to tell her that, that I was all right. And uh, so eventually, they put me in an ambulance and they brought me to Jersey City Medical Center. And uh, they were mobbed. It was just mass confusion over there. They had so many people, they evacuated to Jersey because uh, they figured that New York would be overrun. Meanwhile, it was the other way around. Jersey was overran and New York had hardly anybody. So I went to Jersey, so they checked me out uh, in the, did took x-rays, did, you know, stitched up my leg where it was torn open, and then they put us in a, uh, a room, just cops, firemen, and EMS people. Separate, you know, no windows, so we couldn't see anything. So we're sitting all up there, you know, I'm covered from head to toe, I'm filthy. And they were letting, eventually they were letting guys go take showers, get cleaned up. And everybody kept asking me if I wanted to go take a shower, and I, I just didn't feel like doing anything at the time. I just wanted to sit there. And I kept saying, no, no, I, I'm all right, I'm all right. So I'm watching these other fellas taking showers. You know, they were dirty, but you know, there was nothing really that bad, some of them. And uh, finally, I go and take a shower. I'm talking like hours later, I finally go. So I walk past the mirror in the bathroom, and I'm, you know, so much dust on my hair and my face, and I'm, you know, black, soot all over me. And I said, oh, I guess that's why they wanted me to take a shower. I'm so, I'm so, I'm so dirty. So I just had stitches in my leg, and they say, you know, you're not supposed to get your stitches wet. Well, how are you going to take a shower if you don't get your stitches wet? So I used a bottle of shampoo and a bar of soap, finally got most of the dirt off of me, and uh, came back. They rebandaged my leg, and uh, 
that got infected after, you know, after a few days. And then uh, I asked the nurse, or not even the nurse, one of the caseworkers there. There was a bunch of women there, you know, getting us whatever we needed. You know, they were very nice. I asked her, I said, you know, is there any way we can get, we can uh, find out who's in the hospital? You know, other guys from our company, so we know, you know, if they're here or not. So she said, well, she would go downstairs and make a list. They had a bunch of blackboards in the triage area, and they had your name and your, your medical condition on it, and it would, so she goes, I'll go find out. So she comes back with a bunch of papers, and there's um, names all over it. Some are firemen, some are civilians, some are cops. It could be anybody. So finally, I see a name of my lieutenant who's on it. Uh, actually, that lieutenant was working in the truck that day. He's, he's lieutenant NG1, but he was working in, in 24 truck as a lieutenant. So I see uh, Blake McLaughlin. So I asked the nurse, I said, does this mean that they're here and fine, or does this just mean that they've been brought here, you know, they could be deceased? And then she didn't know. She says, I don't know, they're just on the board. Sorry. It's like five minutes later, 10 minutes later, here comes Blake walking into the, uh, into the room, which I was glad to see, because now I had somebody with me. A few minutes later, you know, I'm like, I was pretty shaken up, you know. And uh, I, when Blake got there, I said, you know, I wish, I could talk to Father Mike, Father Michael Judge, because he was uh, the priest in a uh, church across the street from us, St. Uh, Francis of Assisi, and he's also the fire department chaplain. And he was you know, a really good guy, and we all knew him in the firehouse very well. So I didn't know it at the time, so he tells me, he says, oh, you don't know? I said, what? He said, uh, Father Mike didn't make it. And that you know, really took me for a loop. Finally, they brought us back to New York in a, uh, in a bus that they got from... Uh, New Jersey, and they, they dropped us off at different firehouses, and then we had to get a ride back to our firehouse. And then uh, a few friends of mine, Bill Shimeri and uh, Rick Holdner, they drove in, and uh, about, I'm not even sure what time it was, 10 o'clock at night or something like that, maybe, maybe a little earlier. And they were able to get into the city, and then they drove me home, because I couldn't drive. Injuries were, uh, oh, that was another thing when I was in the hospital. They, their big thing was, they said, well, did you black out? I said, I don't know. How would I know if I blacked out? I, so I think I, if I would have stayed in New York, I would have got better care. I don't really think I got too good a care over in uh, Jersey. I think I would definitely should have stayed tonight. I mean, they sent me home. Uh, you know, it was like, you know, it was like getting hit by a car. With, you know, uh, the injuries, you know, I got, you know, they didn't know, really know if I had any kind of internal injuries or anything. They, you know, they were so overwhelmed. They can't really blame them. They just had, you know, limited uh, staff and so many people to take care of. So, but I just think if I was in New York, uh, St. Vincent's or one of the other big hospitals that I, I would have been to my, uh, my betterment. Because the next day when I woke up, I had, first that day I had a big lump on the one side of my head, on the, uh, on the right side. And uh, the next day I had about a hundred lumps on my head from getting hit in the head. So uh, I'm sure uh, I should have stayed overnight for observation at least. And so uh, my injuries were, I, had, I was basically hurt from head to toe. Every part of my body was injured. Uh, my big injuries were my uh, shoulder, my left shoulder, which is, I need a shoulder replacement. The doctor says there's nothing they can do for it. The joint is uh, messed up. And my left knee uh, was the one that I had uh, uh, casted, I had it operated on. I had, uh, the whole knee was torn apart, ACL, the PCL. Cartilage, all cartilage damage. The um, had a broken, uh, a crack in the tibia. Uh, I got a crushed bone in the in the uh, tibia, the top of the tibia. 
my right side, they got torn ACL, I have uh, torn meniscus, and uh, I had the left side was repaired, they repaired the ACL and the PCL uh, <clears throat> while I was in a cast for the month, that uh, went back, uh, the bone was split, and the bone uh, healed itself, and uh, so that was all right. Uh, the medial meniscus, not the medial meniscus, the uh, medial collateral ligament, they thought they would have to reattach that, thought it was stretched, but while being in a cast for a month, uh, that shrank back on its own, so that was all right. So uh, I had that operation, the ACL reconstruction, and uh, it's over with, but I'm in constant pain every day. It's uh, just something you have to live with. You know, doctors need knee replacement, and until I do that, I'm just in pain, uh, you know, 24-7. I just have to watch what I do, you know. If I got to kneel down, you got to think about it before you just go actually do it. You know, you just can't just kneel down. You got to, you know, oh, which knee am I going to kneel with, my left one or my right one? And then I went in for an operation on my right knee, and uh, the doctor said that he, he wouldn't do it. He said uh, he wouldn't replace the ACL because you have too much damage to that knee, and replacing the ACL will just make the knee tighter, and you'll be in more pain. He says you need two knee replacements. And so I need two knee replacements and a shoulder replacement. Uh, but he recommended, he, he didn't advise, he advised me to hold off on uh, everything, to, you know, you're too young to do it right now. And he advised about the shoulder replacement to really hold off on that because uh, once you get a shoulder replacement, you're really limited to what you can do. And my son doesn't show it much uh, now. I think, you know, I don't know if it doesn't affect him or he's just uh, able to hide it more. And uh, my daughter seems like it really, uh, it really affected her. She was, at the time, she was 11. Or was she 10? I have a problem with her age. I always forget her age. And... Uh, she had a problem with it. She still has a problem. Whenever I go into the city, you know, different uh, functions, I go back to the firehouse for, or whatever, she had a problem with me uh, going back into the city. And uh, yeah, she took it hard. I'm sure both of them did. And also my wife, you know, coming so close to uh, losing me. And again, the other wives in the firehouse, different functions, and, uh, you know, you see them, and then uh, it all takes a toll on them, even though uh, I'm still here, but uh, it still bothers them. In the beginning, I, uh, I had, I wouldn't, I don't know if they were nightmares so much where, you know, nightmare would scare you. These were just a lot of dreams. I mean, uh, and it was a lot, of, basically it was one dream that I had over and over, that I was in a staircase, and the staircase, they weren't the way the staircases are in the, in the trade center. They were like a long, a long uh, hallway, and then the stair, another stair going up. It wasn't you know, a really long hallway. So I'm standing on the landing in the uh, staircase, and the whole building is collapsing in front of me, and you know coming down like a, a chute almost. Almost everything just the staircase is just collapsing one on top of the other, and then you just see uh, you know civilians and firemen just going past you as everything's collapsing. But I'm standing there on an area that's fine. I had that dream quite a few times. And then, uh, you know, just constantly on your mind, every, you know, every day, you know, you're always, um, one way or another, you, you wake up thinking about it, or you go to sleep thinking about it, or, you know, you do both. And uh, it still happens to this day, that, uh, you know, something will happen, and uh, it's basically on your mind 24-7, you know. Not to the part where you can't function, but uh, it is, uh, it, you're always thinking about it.
about the guys, you know, so many guys that, that were lost that day, and so many of them that you knew. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, a lot of times, you say, oh yeah, I know that guy, hey, how you doing? You know, there was a lot of guys that you knew by face, by name, that you actually had, you know, you talked to. Uh, guys from my firehouse, you know, we had four guys from my firehouse alone that were, you know, good friends. Uh, it was uh, Captain Brethel of Ladder 24, uh, Steve Belson from 24 Truck, who was working as an aide that day for Oreo Palmer. And uh, actually, Captain Brethel drove Father Michael Judge down there that day to the uh, scene. He, was, he got off that morning. And then uh, Mike Weinberg from Engine One, who uh, came from home. Of course, his sister worked in the Trade Center, so he went down there to see what, you know, make sure she was right. He ended up uh, with Captain Brethel. They were found together when, uh, after the aftermath. And then the other guy was uh, Lieutenant Desperito, Andy Desperito from Engine One. Uh, all the guys from Engine One made it out, and he didn't. He was uh, with a fellow from the Port Authority. Uh, he was right behind everybody. And uh, he was also uh, involved with, uh, I believe, the, the guys from Ladder 6 who were trying to help that woman out, um, uh, Josephine. He, all the guys, because they, so they were all together at one time on the staircase uh, helping her down, and then they got split up. And uh, the fella that he was with from the Port Authority is fine, and he was right next to him, and uh, you know, he didn't make it. So, uh, like I say, those kind of things, you, you're always on, you know, you'll always remember those things. Thanks to Jocelyn Dong and the Palo Alto Weekly for permission to use the Lori Brody audio. The Palo Alto Weekly YouTube channel is youtube.com slash paweekly. Thanks to Mike Shimeri for his permission to use the Joe Falco audio. Mike's father, Bill, currently works as a volunteer with Joe Falco at the Freeport Fire Department Truck Company. Mike is the host of an instrumental music radio show on public radio station WCWP. You can check out his work at his website, MikeShimeri.com. That's M-I-K-E-C-H-I-M-E-R-I.com. Music for this episode provided by Kevin McLeod. You're listening to What Was That Like? I'm Scott Johnson. See you next time.